0: Welcome, and thanks for listening to the New Life Christian Ministries podcast. If you'd like more information about New Life or for more podcasts and other media, go to newlifexn.org. Good morning. It is good morning this morning. Last night I said good morning a whole bunch of times, uh, and it was not good morning because our service yesterday was at 6.30 at night. Um, So I was super wrong. My name is Mark Lutz. I'm uh, one of the youth directors here at New Life. I work specifically with Relevant Student Ministries, with our leadership development program there, and with our middle schoolers there. And uh, I want to start off this morning by bringing attention to one of our other staff members here at New Life, someone who's not here this morning. If you hadn't noticed, Pastor Brad um, and his wife, who is oftentimes playing the keys Sam French was not here this morning, and that's because this week uh, they had a baby. They had a baby, so that's awesome, and it's healthy, and and everything's great. Um, In addition to that, uh, one of the things that we do here at New Life uh, as staff members is we work ourselves out of a job. That's part of our job. Our job is to work ourselves out of a job, and Pastor Brad has done an awesome job at that, has he not? Um, because you wouldn't know, right? He, You wouldn't know that he wasn't here this morning because not only was the worship team just so incredibly excellent this morning, but also his tech team, um, who isn't up here in the lights, but are back there running cameras and sounds and the lights and everything, um, just did such an amazing job. And just the heads, yeah, you can give them a round of applause. That's so amazing. Um, and just so you know, it's not like we all wear different hats around here. I don't walk in and be like, well, Pastor Brad isn't here. I'll cover all the tech stuff today for him. I don't know anything back there. It, I, I might as well, everything might as well be written in Japanese back there on the soundboard. I know nothing about it. All I can do is mess stuff up. And so really, if it wasn't for the volunteers that are here this morning and the volunteers who are here on the worship team in tech um, it just it wouldn't happen, because none of the other staff members know how to do it, but Pastor Brad has worked at training them very well, and, and they've done such an amazing job. Um, we're here this morning in a brand new series, so if you're new with us this week, we started this series last week, um, and if you're back with us after last weekend... Um, for the first time with Easter, then you know that we started a new series last week, and we're so excited to have you with us here at New Life. We've prayed for you and prepared for you, um, and we're excited that you're here to join us. But We started this series called The Reason for God, and it actually comes out of this book that Pastor Chris read and then a lot of us on staff has read, and then I'm going to encourage you to read as well. It's by Timothy Keller called The Reason for God belief in an age of skepticism, belief in an age of skepticism. Um, I would encourage you to pick up this book. We actually have them on the book stand out there, um, so that's convenient for you, and I think they're relatively pretty, pretty dang cheap out there as well. If not, I'm sure you can find it on Amazon and such as well. Um, but it's a, it's a really powerful book, but I'll give you a warning. It is a philosophy book. Um and more of like a light philosophy book. So if you haven't read philosophy in a long time, like I have not read philosophy in like eight years, um, or maybe you've never read a philosophy book at all, um, it is like a read and reread. Like you read a page and then you're like, I'm gonna start over. And then you reread that page because you really want to be able to understand what he said. But it's an incredibly powerful book that looks at the things, and that's what this whole series is doing, right? We're looking at the critiques that culture has brought to Christianity. Today, because American culture has brought a lot of things to Christianity today um, in in the in the world in which we live, and they brought a lot of claims, not just to but against Christianity, and not just against Christianity but against religion in general in our culture and our and cultures across the board. They've been doing this for hundreds of years, right? That they've been critiquing and even trying to eradicate religion altogether. But Christianity is oftentimes Uh, up against a lot of heat inside of our culture. And this book seeks to, with reason and with a lot of uh, just intellect, come against some of those things and show that there's reason and intellectual proof to believe the things that we believe as followers of Jesus. And so it's an incredibly impactful book. And so that's why we're in this series. We're in this series to look at some of the major things, like the problem of sin, the existence of God, amongst many other things, as to the things that the culture is bringing up against Christianity to help us sort of wrap our minds around those things and then to go out in the world with intelligent and reasoned responses to the things that culture is bringing against Christianity and the ideologies that Christianity and worldviews that Christianity faces today in our modern culture. And so today although we're going to be going up against a lot of major big tough subjects throughout this series and they're they're huge and they're really great ones but they're big questions they're really big questions. Today I'm simply going to address two statements that our culture makes regarding Christianity. Two statements that our culture makes regarding Christianity and they're these. The first is that all the big religions are essentially the same and that we all need to learn to coexist or become eradicated altogether because religion is the cause of war and unrest the second is that god simply does not exist and if he does exist you cannot prove it and he cannot be known now i say that we're going to simply address these things right right because this is like the reason behind the validation for religion and culture across the board and then the proving the existence of god And there's 29 minutes left. So we're not going, (laughs) it's absurd, right? Both of these subjects could be message series on their own. So to address both of these in the next 30 minutes is absurd. Because one thing, I'm not God, nor am I Jesus, and I'm not the Holy Spirit. On top of that, I'm not even a philosopher, right? I'm a storyteller and a communicator by nature. That's just kind of how the way, the way that God has built me. And so uh, because I'm not any of those things, I hope that we can just begin to sort of get into some of this stuff and begin to explore some of this stuff and take a look at not only what this book says, Timothy's book says, but also a little bit about what the Word of God has to say regarding these two major questions and these two major statements that our culture is posing to Christianity today. The first thing that I want to do, and we're going to take a sharp turn here, right, is I want to address everyone in the room that is an ostrich. Told you it was a sharp turn. That's out of left field, right? Nobody knew ostrich. You were not thinking that ostrich was going to come out of my mouth. Ostrich. Ostriches protect themselves by sticking their head in the sand, right? That's their first defense mech. They run along, and they're fast, and they're big birds, but if they feel threatened, their defense is to stick their head in the ground. Well, as Christians, a lot of times, that's what we do. When we see things that we don't like, our response is just to stick our head in the warm sand and pretend that it's not happening. I have, I have family members like that, right? I have two of them. And here's the thing. We, it's not just cultural things. People do this with their lives all over the place. So I have two family members who do this. Um, one of them hates emotional pain. He hates dealing with emotional pain. And so anytime he has to deal with emotional pain in his life, he sticks his head in the sand, pretends it just didn't happen, just goes to his own world and pretend it didn't exist. I have another one who, another another family member who doesn't believe, doesn't want to believe that the culture has changed since the time that he was a child. He wants to believe that things like gay rights and a lot of other major social and political issues that have come up in our culture over the past decade or two just don't exist. They just haven't happened. And so when I talk to him about it, he's like, ah, don't worry about that. And then he just sticks his head in the sand like it's not happening. The problem with being an ostrich in our culture is oftentimes things don't get better. Oftentimes things get worse. And then what happens is you pull your head out of the sand because the emotional pain gets so bad that you can no longer keep your head buried anymore. Or you pull your head in the sand and you realize, like, I don't recognize anything about this culture. Because I had in my head in the sand so long that I have completely forgotten about what the world looks like. And now when a pastor comes up front, or someone who's preaching comes up front, and they read two statements like that, the, the number one tendency, I think, for me, and this is my number one tendency, is to turn and point the finger like he's chicken little. And like, oh, great, so this guy's going to get up, he's going to be up front, he has the microphone, so he's going to pretend like the sky is falling, and we're all supposed to get on board with him and pretend like the sky is falling as well. That's ridiculous, I'm done, I'm not paying attention to you. And I get that, I get that. And I can say all of that because that's me. As a Christian, I would love to pretend that the world is fine, that Christianity is fine, that I am fine, the church is fine. Let's just continue to do things how we're doing them and let's just not why do we have to like stress about stuff, right? Because I'm I used to be a really dramatic person. I try to be less dramatic now, and it seems just dramatic, doesn't it? It just seems dramatic. And so I'm like I'm just like, mm, "No, I don't want to deal with it." But what I found is is that the Bible doesn't call us to be an ostrich and stick our head in the sand and pretend that things in the world around us are not happening. In fact, God calls us to be something very different than that. And that is outlined for us in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 33, starting in verse one. Ezekiel 33 reads this. Once again, a message came to me, that is Ezekiel, from the Lord. Son of man, give your people this message. When I bring an army against a country, the people of that land choose one of their own to be a watchman. When the watchman sees the enemy coming, he sounds the alarm to warn the people. Then if those who hear the alarm refuse to take action, it is their own fault if they die. They heard the alarm but ignored it, so the responsibility is theirs. If they had listened to the warning, they could have saved their lives. But if the watchman sees the enemy coming and doesn't sound the alarm to warn the people, he is responsible for their captivity. They will die in their sins, but I will hold the watchman responsible for their deaths. That takes us to our take-home point for today. And it's the one point that I want us to remember, myself included, to take home and to live out in the coming week. It's the one point that my message is going to hinge upon, the one point that I'm going to be centered on, the one point I want to make. And it's this today. God does not need another ostrich. He needs another watchman. God does not need another ostrich. He needs another watchman. Because the truth of the matter is, is that an ostrich is defenseless. Whereas a watchman will guard the things of God that are precious to God's kingdom. And I will tell you this right now, especially if you're the ostrich type of person, oftentimes like I am, we feel safe especially from these two types of statements. We may turn on CNN and be, be forced to like encounter these sorts of things, brush up against them, grate up against these worldviews a little bit, right? But generally speaking, if we're Christians in like western Pennsylvania, Farmville, USA, in quaint Saxonburg, and you're like me and you never watch the news because you hate it and you just don't want to watch it, you just would rather watch Netflix. That is true, true. Then you probably don't brush up against these two worldviews very often and it's very easy to begin to dismiss them and not be a watchman for them. And if that's you and that this, this feeling of it's my job to be a watchman has not woken up in you and you're not convinced, then allow me to maybe open your eyes a little bit further. Because although you may not brush up against this on a daily basis, I would pose this to you. That your children and your grandchildren don't just rub up against this on a daily basis. They are submerged in it every day of their life. Their worldview is this. They grow up in a world that knows nothing different. The concept that there is one God, that there is one true religion, that truth and right and wrong have the power to exist in the world, that Jesus Christ could die for somebody's sins, and if you believe in him, that that is the way to heaven and that no other way to heaven or to paradise exists is completely foreign in youth culture. These two concepts that you can't prove the existence of God, that there is no actual truth, and that all religion possibly should be eradicated, and that no one should be religious at all, and at the very least that we should all exist together in harmony and just agree with one another because we're all the same anyway, is widely embraced, if not fully embraced, by both Christians and non-Christians in youth culture today. Because what we do not guard as watchmen will be raided and carried away by the thief, that is the devil, for our children and for our grandchildren. I work with them as middle schoolers every day. They don't come into the building with a worldview that I grew up with that there is a sense of right and wrong in the world, or that there is truth, or that there is a God. By and large, most students who walk in walk in with these two worldviews because our world is winning the battle with our children and our grandchildren. And a lot of that is because many of us, myself included, have not been great watchmen. That's the price that we pay for being an ostrich in this world. It's not of ourselves, but it will be of those who come after us. So with that in mind, let's address these two prevailing thoughts that are in our culture today. That even if you don't brush up against them while walking down Main Street, Saxonburg this week, be aware that your children and grandchildren in their schools are every single day walking down the hallway running into these things. And the first one is this. The big religions of the world are essentially the same. And we need to learn to coexist or become eradicated altogether. Because religion is the cause of war and unrest. As we've dealt with this, by and large, cultures have dealt with this exact subject, the eradication of religion or forcing religions to get together in three major ways. The first one is one way that we see in our culture, and it's the way that they've chosen to deal with it most pointedly, although it is the most sneaky approach. And it can be outlined most clearly in one bumper sticker that you may see on the back of several cars. In fact, I drive through this back street of Butler usually about once a week, and there's a car in the back street of Butler that has this bumper sticker. It makes me think about it every time. It's a bumper sticker that simply says coexist on the back of it. And the word coexist, each letter is made up of a different religious symbol of a different major religion from the world. The concept and the worldview that's being prescribed by this bumper sticker, is that all the world religions, despite what they believe privately, need to learn to publicly coexist and to agree with one another because it's because of them that war and unrest and genocide is happening throughout our world. It's this concept that what we can do to get rid of religion or to solve the issue of religion in our culture from a secular standpoint is that we can educate it away The educating it away is pointed most directly at our children and youth culture. We will educate it away. Then we will separate them from their parents and from those who believe differently than them by marginalizing them with words like bigoted and hater and narrow-minded. All words that we can resonate with. Because if you're a believer, you have felt like those words have been pointed at you from time to time even if they were not. It's a worldview that oftentimes our culture takes, and it's the one that they've used most readily to attack Christianity in our culture. The next one that's used oftentimes in our culture as well, but maybe not as often is this thought that, well, Christianity, all faith backgrounds, really are fine. You can believe whatever you want privately, but you cannot believe it publicly. What you believe privately is fine, but you can't believe it publicly. The thought goes, it's okay to be a Christian as long as you're a Christian privately. It's okay to be a Buddhist as long as you're a Buddhist privately. It's okay to be a Muslim as long as your Muslim beliefs don't carry over into the workplace, into the marketplace, or into politics. The concept says that it's okay to believe whatever it is that you want to believe religiously, but as long as that's in your private life and in your public life, you're secular. We see this most clearly from politicians who claim to believe in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, yet they vote in ways that are very contrary to the truth of the Bible. For they're asked to believe something privately, religiously, and publicly. They're asked to be very secular. The last way that our world has decided to deal with this is to outlaw religion altogether. The three key places that I want to outline this morning are, are atheist and communist Cuba, who's outlawed religion. Soviet Russia, who also outlawed religion. Nazi Germany, who controlled religion and outlawed some. All three were countries who sought to outlaw religion. Soviet Russia called religion the opium of the masses. Claiming that it is religion itself that fuels hatred and division between people. Surely, if we could eradicate it by outlawing it for a generation or two. When the religious generations died off, religion would die off along with it. And so how should we respond? Because these are three worldviews that are happening. Maybe not all three in America today, but even the last one, Christians feel keenly, right? We fight fervently, some more fervently than others, for our right to religious freedom in this country because we feel that laws are encroaching on what we believe, sometimes daily. So all three of these worldviews are being pushed upon us. We feel the weight of them, even if we don't actively try to feel it. So how should we respond? Because I have news for you. It comes from a good place. All three of these worldviews come from something that's true. Christians and the other world religions have oftentimes fought against one another. And why is that? Well, it's really simple, actually. It's because every one of the major world religions, generally speaking, believes that they have exclusive truth, that their truth is the truth, and that no other world religion has the truth. That if we believe that Jesus is the son of God and the other world religions do not, that we must be right and they must be wrong or they must be right and we must be wrong. But it simply can't be both. You can't have your cake and eat it too. So because we believe we have exclusive truth and they believe they have exclusive truth and they believe they have exclusive truth and oftentimes creates in our world a feeling of superiority where Jews believe they're better than Muslims and Muslims believe they're better than Christians and Christians believe they're better than Hindus. Hindus believe they're better than atheists. And it goes around in a circle. And see, the problem becomes that this feeling of superiority oftentimes doesn't end there. But it ends up becoming resentment and then hatred, turning into oppression, and then oftentimes murder. And we see it on the news in countries, and we believe it will never happen here. But it does. It just doesn't always make the news. Because it's not always done in bombings. And so they're not wrong. These secular worldviews that want to address the problem of Christianity and religion in our culture today aren't wrong. We've oftentimes fought and they want to get rid of the fighting and the feuding between one another. And as Christians, we should want to get rid of it as well. The problem is, is that the three worldviews, the three solutions that our culture provides won't work. And here's the reason why. The first one I want to address is the outlawing of religion. I don't know about you, but I don't think that communist Cuba, atheist Cuba, Soviet Russia, or Nazi Germany are regimes that we want to rinse and repeat. As it turns out, after we outlawed religion thinking that it was religion that caused genocide, hatred, and murder amongst its people, we found that it wasn't religion at all that did it. In fact, if you eradicated religion, oftentimes it got worse. Instead, the truth of the matter was that the propensity for genocide, murder, hatred came from the human heart. We're not capable of that because of feuding religious sects who hate one, one another, but we are capable of that because we ourselves are sinful people who are capable of great amounts of torture and horror. And so as it turns out, outlawing religion simply hasn't worked. The next one, this concept of removing religion from the public sphere altogether, once again is another dried up stream bed. Because the concept is, well surely you can be a a Christian in your private life or a Muslim in your private life, but you can't be it in your public life. The issue with that is, is there isn't one of the world religions that claims to just give guidance to how you believe about God and what you should do in your private life. No, instead, it gives you guidance about what you believe about God and then how you should live in every arena of your life thereafter. In fact, to tell somebody who believes in a religion, any one of the major religions, Christianity included, but all of them, that they should believe something privately but never allow that to cross into their public life is asking a two-year-old who has just combined two colors of Plato thoroughly to politely separate them before he puts them away. And I know that seems like a childish way to look at it. But can you imagine your belief in Jesus Christ not informing the decisions that you make? In the same way, the beliefs of a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Hindu, or an atheist not informing the decisions that they would make, both publicly and privately. It's absurd. The last conclusion that culture has come to, the one about educating away and then marginalizing religion inside of a culture has worked very, very well for Christians here. And the reason for that is because Christians, by and large, will not give up everything at once. In fact, if tomorrow the United States of America outlawed Christianity, there would be a lot of very upset and very proud Christians. The issue is is that we are not oftentimes prone to give up everything at once, but we are very prone to take one step back at a time giving up one foot at a time. We will not jump off a bridge when asked to. The problem is is that we're willing to take so many one steps back that we oftentimes end up at the bottom of the same bridge that we were asked to jump off of. And this has worked incredibly well in our culture today. As we've educated away Christianity with our young young kids, and then we've marginalized it with their parents. It's worked very, very well. The issue with this worldview is that it's self-defeating. And this is a little philosophical, so please follow me in this. The very concept that this is based off of is the word coexist, basically. And the the concept is that there's no one worldview or religion that's better than the other. There's no one truth that's better than the other. You should learn to coexist with one another because there's no one point of view that people come to that's better than another point of view. We're all basically the same. We all come to the same worldviews and we should all learn to get along and love one another. The problem with this worldview is that by Assigning this to people, I am by definition assigning a new and elite worldview that's better than everybody else's, saying that my worldview of coexisting with one another is better than all of yours, and you need to get in line with what I believe instead of what you believe. It's self-defeating. It's a religion in and of itself. In fact, I have a statement here that I just didn't want to mess up, so I wrote it down It simply says this, coexist has become the religion of those who are undecided in our culture. And their cardinal sin is intolerance. We have not moved to being a culture devoid of religion, but we have once again, like the Greeks before us, begun to embrace a pantheon of gods from which we can pick and choose to fit the group of people we are currently associating with. So what does the Bible say in response? Because all of this is good and well. But as followers of Jesus, we need to know, how does the Bible respond? The Bible responds first off in Romans 12, 2, I think, when it says this, Don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person. oh, By changing the way that you think, then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. There's never been a time, I don't think, that has been more important for us to know the word of God. And then in Matthew 5, it says this. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. The concept of outlawing religion, marginalizing it and educating it away, or removing it from the public sphere are all very poisonous, polluted, and flawed worldviews. And I beg of you, if you're here today and it's one of those three that you have prescribed to and you're a follower of Jesus, I beg of you to abandon it. Because it freely opens the gate for the thief, that is the devil, to break in, to steal, and to destroy the things that are precious to God. That further generations should have. Instead, I bring you this worldview that the Bible brings to us. And it is simple yet insanely difficult. And it is has allowed the Holy Spirit to renew our minds. To change who we are from the inside out. And then through that renewing of our minds and the Holy Spirit changing who we are from the inside out, we begin to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. It means that as followers of Jesus, we learn to stop hating, disliking, marginalizing Hindus, Jews, Muslims, and atheists. But instead, we learn to view them as Jesus viewed them, precious and beautiful images of His Father made in His image, beautifully, humbly made. Worthy of the death of His Son, Jesus Christ, on a cross. Worthy of our love and worthy of our respect. Christianity is the answer to this dilemma because it is only Christianity that begs of us to pray for those who persecute us to be renewed by the Holy Spirit, and to love our enemies. It truly is only the Word of God in Christianity that prescribes a worldview that could actually work to bring an end to the feuding between different religions in the world in which we live. The other point that I wanted to address this morning, and it's a big one, is this. God simply does not exist and if he does exist, you simply, that you can sim, you, mm. that you cannot prove it, and that he cannot be known. We're not going to prove the existence of God this morning. We're not going to prove it with philosophy, and we're not going to do it because of this passage that comes to us from Ephesians chapter two verse eight. It says this, "For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not from yourselves. it is a gift of God." Notice this passage does not say, for it is by grace that you have been saved through philosophy and reason, and it is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. We're not going to prove the existence of God with philosophy and reason because that's absurd. Why? Because there's no place in the Bible where God says, here, I challenge you, prove that I exist. No, but there are plenty of places in the Bible where it says, to follow me and my son Jesus, it will take outrageous amounts of faith. It will take incredible faith. And I got news for you. Faith is the only way to salvation. And with proof, there cannot be faith. Faith, by definition, requires that there is no proof. And so if you require proof of the existence of God, then you also require that you cannot have salvation. So we're not going to prove the existence of God this morning. So why even bring up the subject? Because although we cannot prove the existence of God, there are sufficient thumbprints that are left behind by him in the world in which we live. There's evidences. I compare this to a potter. When we see a pot, we don't just assume that the pot came about by chance. No, but it was made by a potter. And if we need evidence for that, we seek and look for the evidence that he's left behind by his thumb and his fingerprints, the evidence that he's left behind by the work that he's created. I don't assume that our world came about by chance, so we look for the evidence as the thumbprints that God has left behind. In this book, which there's many more that I'm going to talk about this morning, I'm only going to outline two, The Mysterious Bang and The Cosmic Order. I think that's the name of the two. Mr. Keller outlines six more. And he gives you a book that you can go to to find more than that. So I would encourage you once again to buy the book and read it because they're incredible. But the first one, The Mysterious Bang, comes to us from a scientific idea called The Big Bang. Right? I think that's what it's called. Yeah. The Big Bang. I don't know how it brain, brain fart there. Um, the Big Bang. If you had your head in the sand long enough, then you might, know, you might not know what this is, but according to science, the universe was created because uh, billions of years ago, atoms came together causing an explosion. This explosion birthed suns and stars and, and planets and the universe. And it's expanding continually, at just under the speed of light in all directions. And so from that, I always believed that this scientific theory and the Bible were in complete opposition to one another. Surely these two could not mix. I was taught that when I was growing up in Sunday school. As I grew older and I began to read the Bible, I began to reflect, and I couldn't figure out why. Because I read this in Genesis 1, 1 through 3. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. When I read Genesis 1, 1 through 3, I look at that, and I'm like, man, that sounds like a big bang to me. I mean, God doesn't describe sound effects in it, but I'm assuming that when he created things, it came with sound effects. I mean, to be honest with you, I have always understood God to be a great storyteller. And without sound effects, this seems pretty anticlimactic to me. And so as I read this, I was like, I really don't understand why these two things don't come together. In fact, scientists don't understand why either. Prevailing scientists in this field of study now are beginning to look at this. And they're realizing, as they always have realized, that nature cannot create of itself something from nothing. It cannot create something from nothing. So for there to have been a beginning, which there was, then something outside of nature must have started it. God has left his thumbprint there. The other thumbprint, the cosmic order, comes to us once again from the study of physics. If you don't know this, I love physics. I studied it in high school. I love the study of space. I love the fact that whenever I was in high school, I could take the 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 general makeup of the planet of Saturn, its diameter, and with universal gravitational pull, I could tell you what its gravitational pull was through a formula. I loved understanding physics. It was an incredible subject for me. And Mr. Keller tells us that in the universe, which some of these I knew about, some of them I don't, there are 15... Force constants in the universe. One of them is universal gravitational force. It's one number that you can use anywhere in the universe. It's the force of gravity everywhere that acts on everything. Two of them are weak and strong nuclear force. Then there's 13 others. The unique thing about these numbers and these forces is that they are what they are for no apparent reason. But if they were changed, the universe could very likely fall apart and cease to exist. In fact, he calls it, he says it's, it's kind of like somebody had gone about and turned a bunch of dials to exactly what they are. Perfectly. So that the universe could come into existence. Even Stephen Hawking was quoted as saying when you look at the science of the creation of the universe there's really no way to go about it than to come to the conclusion that it was created for us. Created for us. But I don't really care a whole lot about what Stephen Hawking has to say, although I respect the guy, I care more about what God has to say. And he says it like this. I think it's more profound in Genesis 1:16. God made two great lights. the larger one to govern the day, the smaller one to govern the night. He also made the stars. In high school, I had a professor. His name was Dr. Wargo. Dr. Wargo is known to be an outspoken atheist. I was known to be an outspoken Christian, but I loved science. So I took his class, not because I had to and not because I wanted to convert him, but because I wanted to learn from him, because he was an amazing teacher. It was in that class, from my atheist professor, who cared very, very deeply for me, by the way, I became a very close friend with, that I learned more about the proof that God existed through the study of space and science than I did at that point in my life from any sermon that I had heard. As an 18-year-old in my atheist teacher's science class, I learned more proof about the fact that God existed because He left His thumbprint all over our universe than I did in any sermon that I had heard up to that point in my life. If these thumbprints aren't sufficient to you, if you don't buy it, then I encourage you once again to get this book because if these aren't, I believe the other ones will be. Because God has not just left his thumbprint in the creation of the universe or in the space that's outside of our atmosphere, but he has left it inside of us as well in the way that we look at beauty and in the way that the world has been created around us. But I'll tell you this to go from thumbprint to salvation, it will always take a leap of faith which brings us really today to those of you who are in the room right now who have never made a commitment to Jesus before. You've oftentimes been the person that really this series is all about, who said, I'll believe in God when you can prove it to me. And today I hope I didn't prove the existence of God to you, but I hope that I've shown you sufficient evidence. And I hope that I've also shown you that religion is not the enemy of the world nor the opium of the masses, but belief in Jesus Christ is the answer and solution to the world's problems. It is the solution to the world's hurts. It's what puts things back together. It is about reconciliation and restoration. And if you're in this room this morning and that resonates with you, then I would just encourage you, please, I've run over, and so people will be scattering out these doors at the end of service. There'll be people along the side and up front. We call them our prayer partners. If this has resonated with your heart and you think maybe this Jesus thing, there's something to it, maybe this God thing is real, then please come forward and talk to one of them. They want to pray with you. They want to talk to you about what making a commitment to Jesus Christ with your life is all about. Please come forward and talk to them. Because making the jump from thumbprint to salvation will always be a leap of faith. Which brings us to our commitment to the day, which is our closing. Our commitment today is a lot like our take-home point, and it's simple. It's just this. I will live as a watchman and not as an ostrich this week. I will live as a watchman and not as an ostrich this week. That means for me, and hopefully for you, that we will carefully guard the things of God this week. Because you may not feel the keenness of their attack in your life daily. And especially if you don't watch the news, you probably won't. But I promise you those who will, will be your children and grandchildren. And I hope and I pray that this week that you will watch out for these worldviews. That you won't jump down your children's throat when you get home. I hope that doesn't happen. But that you will watch out for them. That you will show them that God exists. That truth is real. That there is right and there is wrong in this world. And that Jesus Christ is the solution. Pray with me. Father God, I thank you for today. And this opportunity that we've had to gather and and just to dig in and learn about you. And the reasoning and rationale behind your existence and just behind religion in general. I pray, God, because we are up against it in a culture that wishes to educate away and marginalize us. But I know that You prevail and that You are victorious. And that You are victorious through Your church. So I'm asking, God, that You would be victorious through us. Your name, Amen.